Welcome to Season 2 of Breaking Free. I'm Rania Kurdi, a confidence life coach, comedian and mother of two. I invite you to join me bi-weekly for confidence tips and interesting chats with my guests who work in fields that help develop confidence. And sometimes with people who have a personal story to share of how they were able to break free from fears that held them back from living their life with confidence and purpose. Today's episode is about an issue that so many people struggle with on a daily basis. People-pleasing. How do you know if you do it? How does it affect your confidence or hold you back? And most importantly, what can you do about it? The good news is you can change and the advantages of changing will definitely outweigh the disadvantages of staying stuck in a cycle where you constantly ignore your own needs and desires in order to please others. How do I know that change is possible? Because growing up in a culture that puts everyone first made me a people pleaser. Having a job in the spotlight as an entertainer also made me hyper-vigilant to never come across as a diva by asking for my needs. And as an empath, I found it hard to see someone struggle in any way and not jump to their rescue. Even to the point that I almost donated my healthy kidney to an artist I hardly knew. But I changed those patterns and now live a lighter, more authentic and happier life. So there is hope. And if you're listening to this and wondering if you're a people pleaser or are you just really kind, here are some things you can ask yourself, some of which I read in an article on Healthline entitled How to Stop People Pleasing and Still Be Nice. Do you always edit or alter your behaviour and what you say for the sake of others? Do you go out of your way to do things you assume someone else needs? Do you prioritise someone else's needs over your own by giving up your time and energy at a drop of a hat? Do you only feel worthy if you're giving to someone else and being useful? Do you need praise and appreciation to feel good about yourself? Do you worry a lot about rejection? Do you have a strong desire to be needed because it feels like there's a better chance of receiving affection? Do you struggle to say no? People can abuse this and ignore your boundaries when you try to voice them because they're used to you saying yes. A good question to ask yourself in general is, what are you saying yes to that you actually want to say no to? And what are you saying no to that you actually want to say yes to? Are you saying no to your own needs when you say yes to other people's? Because we don't really think about that, but actually agreeing to do so many things for other people means that you're not doing them for yourself. You're putting things aside that you need to do yourself and then there's this overwhelm later when you're trying to make up for lost time. Have you stayed in a job you don't like or an unhappy marriage for too long just so people don't think ill of you? Do you apologise and accept fault when you're not to blame? Do you play down your own strengths around others who are achieving less, perhaps with phrases like, oh yeah, I'm rubbish at that? Do you agree with others, even if you have a different opinion, just to keep them happy because you don't want to disagree with them? 
Do you find it difficult to be authentic because it becomes hard to recognise your own feelings and needs when you're so focused on others? Do you choose to be a martyr by sacrificing and hoping others will reciprocate? Are you too busy being there for others to have your own hobbies and relaxation time? It's a good thing to be considerate of others, but there's a way you can still be thoughtful and kind without neglecting yourself. It's much more genuine and authentic when you have taken care of your own needs and give because you want to rather than because you want to be liked. Doing things with the intention of getting approval can lead to you feeling resentful and possibly fall out with someone you're doing too much for when they take advantage of your help or don't reciprocate. A lot of the time, people don't even realise the sacrifices you're making. They just think you have loads of free time and probably have nothing better to do. So the negative effects people-pleasing has on you and those around you is that the more you agree or offer to do, the more you'll be asked, whether it's for money, advice, lifts to places, gatherings and dinners that you always end up hosting at your place, etc. Perhaps you might let your child dodge responsibilities or break house rules because you don't want them to dislike you, but this will make them miss out on learning valuable lessons that they'll need in life. When you're in a relationship and it lacks an equal amount of giving and taking, you'll only feel liked for how much you do for your partner. All this can increase your levels of stress because you're worrying about rejection and taking on more than you can handle. You might anger your partner or family by how much time and energy you give to helping everyone else. You might anger loved ones when they find out you've lied or altered the truth, even if your intention was to spare their feelings or avoid confrontation. So why do so many of us do it? Why is it so hard to say no or to speak up, to express our own desires. It could be a response to past trauma as a child or from partner abuse where it didn't feel safe to maintain boundaries. You learned it was safer to take care of what others wanted of you first. If you were liked, you were safe. Maybe you were punished or criticised when you did something your loved ones disliked And so you learn to do what they wanted, even before they asked it of you. Perhaps you have low self-esteem because your caregivers or teachers made you believe your value was based on what you do for others, which can keep playing on repeat throughout your life if you aren't aware of it and make intentional effort to change that negative belief. I grew up in a culture in the Middle East where Pleasing a guest or stranger had more priority than your own needs or those of your children. Simple things like visitors staying too late when you have to get up early or not feeling well but don't feel you can ask them to leave. Accepting guests or relatives to stay over for extended periods of time because you don't want to seem rude. Or attending events you don't want to go to because you don't want to offend. And many of us have seen our parents exhaust themselves pleasing others and then grumbling at home about how much they resented it and felt exhausted. And that teaches us to ignore our own needs. We learn that taking care of our needs first is selfish. 
I remember when I first moved to England almost 10 years ago now, how offended and hurt I felt about neighbours or old friends fitting in a date and time to see me sometime in the future because they had their own plans. I was used to dropping plans for others and vice versa. It was only until I began to do that for myself and respect my own time to go and exercise or have a day to relax or attend something I'd been looking forward to that I began to see it as normal and didn't take things personally anymore. But in other ways, what I notice about the majority of British people is how being polite is almost an 11th commandment and so there is an abundance of pleasers and sorries in the worry that someone might get offended. Even a slight stutter when asking a question. Um, um, perhaps we could, um, leave by four, um, to, to get there in time, or, um, hoping the other person will cut in and relieve them and say, yes, that's fine, or I'd prefer it if, um... The over-politeness results in resentment at anyone not seemingly following the rules and this is shown in a non-confrontational passive-aggressive side comment. The politeness and stiff smile when incongruent with the anger in someone's energy or bulging vein in the forehead doesn't attract good results. Incongruence in psychology as described by Carl Rogers is when your feelings do not align with your actions. German and Danish culture, for example, seem much more congruent and express their true feelings, which can come across as very blunt when they say, no, I don't want to do that. But wouldn't you rather have that than deal with someone who's giving you dagger eyes while they talk to you politely and you know they don't mean a word of what they're saying? And you then discover they said something nasty about you to someone else, but not to your face. Haven't you or someone you know wanted something done, but instead of asking clearly, you transformed a request into an attack? In Cassia Urbaniak's book, A Woman's Guide to Power Unbound, she gives an example of a mother asking the dad, could you take the kids to school on Mondays? Being far clearer and effective than the passive-aggressive way of saying... It would be really nice if you could take your kids to school for once in your life. That implies he's failing as a father and a husband and that every time she dropped them off she secretly resented him and if he does it this one time he's still worthless and self-involved in her eyes and if he was a better man she wouldn't have to bring that up. How would you respond to that? How would you feel? Notice how nearly every complaint hides a desire, like, I would love a bouquet of flowers instead of the complaint, you never buy me flowers. And that won't get the response that you want. She says to make your desire more specific, like, instead of I want romance, turn it into, I want to be held tightly for at least 10 minutes in an all-encompassing, never-let-me-go kind of hug. Your ask should feel right in your body. If you're bringing all the times you were let down to your ask or asking with the belief that the other person will never get it right, they will sense it in your body. Whether you're asking for the kind of sex you want, a raise or a small favour, the conversation under the conversation 
begins with you. A desire satisfied is also a desire completed, says Katya, and it's fine to change what you want over time. Each new desire represents the next steps on your unique path. When you find creative ways to honour your internal signals, you are guaranteed to find your unique destiny. And Cassia also explains that one of the very first instructions we receive is that it's okay, indeed expected, to lie about our feelings. You may rejoin the group when you say you're sorry, your first grade teacher tells you. You're not sorry, not at all, but it's cold and lonely in the corner. You don't want to be on the outside, nobody does. So you fake contrition and join the herd. This disconnection from our feelings and desires continues to be rewarded, especially for women. You ignore your hunger and skip dinner so you'll fit into that dress you bought for the 8th grade dance. And you keep your mouth shut when the intern coordinator who will write your recommendations tells an off-colour joke. You injure your knee on a morning run you knew you were too tired and sore to do safely and date men even though they don't do it for you. You convince yourself that you can make a beach vacation work because it will make your husband and your kids happy even though you hate the sand and the sun. Over a lifetime of ignoring our basic inner cues, we lose touch with what we're actually thinking and feeling. We go numb. We lose discernment, the understanding that subtle differences make a difference that isn't subtle at all. And that's no good. We need to know what we are feeling. We must be alert to our inner signal, attentive to its spirit and to the information it carries. This space is where the treasure lies. It's the place from which our deepest desires, the ones that fuel our destiny and feed our life force, are born. These deepest desires may not noisily announce themselves, they may appear as nothing more than a vague impulse, a feeling you can't quite settle into, a shapeless longing that takes the form of dissatisfaction and the vague suspicion that there has to be something more. These desires may seem mysterious or confusing, contradictory or impossible at first. It will always be easier to ignore them to bypass the uncertainty they arouse. Indeed, many of us spend a lifetime doing it. But whatever ideas you hatch without connection to that deep inner signal will always run the risk of lifelessness. Desires born from true connection carry the vital spark of something essential, something unique, something only you can bring into the world. Think of the difference between a cheap plastic bowl made with thousands of others in a factory with a history of human rights violations and one that is hand-thrown with craft, beautifully glazed and fired with intention. Even the emotions we're not supposed to feel, rage, shame, fear, have a tremendous amount of energy tied up in them. This substate is how we access and alchemize those emotions so we can harness that energy for good. It gives us the chance to explore our own resistance, which will help us to navigate it when we encounter it in others. And it leads to the most transformative force we have access to, self-celebration. We are so out of touch with our emotions nowadays and our own feelings and needs 
that imagine going back a hundred years and telling your great-grandmother that she needed to stay hydrated. She would have looked at you like you were completely insane. If your great-grandmother was fortunate enough to have access to clean water, she drank when she was thirsty. But because we're so out of touch with our inner signal, we can no longer be trusted to do that anymore. So we police our bodies with smart water bottles connected to apps that remind us to drink or rules about how many ounces we need to choke down every day. So how do we break the pattern of people-pleasing and not paying attention to our own needs? Well, first of all, awareness. And hopefully that first step has happened if you're listening to this podcast today and recognise those habits in yourself. Then consider your intention behind wanting to help. Will it bring you joy or will it make you feel resentful if it isn't reciprocated? Realise it's healthy to put your needs first and you'll be more able to help those you wish to when you want to. Practice with small things first. Big changes might result in those who know you to see it as a personal attack at first and changing the usual dynamic, which might scare you and make you back down quickly. So think of small things and and make the changes slow. Try planning something for yourself. Try saying, thanks for thinking of me. I'll need to check if I'm free then, instead of an instant yes. Try voicing a need like, Can we put the heater on, please? I'm feeling really cold. Don't let that uncomfortable feeling in your stomach or the fear of rejection stop you from trying. It's just hard breaking old habits at the beginning, but the rewards will most definitely outweigh the discomfort you've felt putting your needs last for so many years. Ask for what you need in a relationship. Share your opinion at work or at college. Think and note what boundaries you would like to have. They may even be to yourself, like, I'm not going to answer emails after 6pm. Hold back from volunteering your help and wait till you're asked. Don't defend your no with reasons and lies. Just try saying politely, thank you for asking, but I won't be able to. Imagine how easy it would be to say no, no matter how much you were pressured, If you were out with your young child, for instance, and a stranger asked if he or she could take them to play around the back of the park, it would be a definite no, no matter how many times they asked, right? Talk to a therapist or coach to get help with breaking these patterns and lessening the anxiety around doing so. It's just important for me to mention here that ADHD ignites something called rejection-sensitive dysphoria, RSD, which is extreme emotional sensitivity and pain triggered by the perception that a person has been rejected or criticised by important people in their life, according to an article written by MD William Dodson on attitudemag.com. It may also be triggered by a sense of failing short, failing to meet their own high standards or others' expectations. Emotional response hurts people with ADHD or ADD more than it does people without the condition. It feels unbearable, restricting and highly impairing. When RSD is internalised, it can imitate a full major mood disorder 
complete with suicidal ideation and be misdiagnosed as rapid cycling mood disorder. When RSD is externalised, it looks like an instantaneous rage at the person responsible for causing the pain. RSD can make adults with ADHD anticipate rejection and make them vigilant about avoiding it, which can be misdiagnosed as social phobia. People with ADHD cope with this in two ways mostly. Either by people-pleasing, where they present a false self to others so others are never displeased with them, or they stop trying because it feels too risky to try something new and fail or be rejected, or go the opposite way and overachieve. RSD is part of ADHD. It's neurologic and genetic and has special medications that can help. I hope the information in this episode has been helpful to you or perhaps helpful to someone close to you if you share the episode with them. And remember, you can always connect with me through my website, raniakurdi.com and just drop me an email. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Free, please share it with your friends or on your social media platforms. And of course, I'd really love it if you can subscribe, rate or review the show. You can reach me directly at raniakurdi.com if you would like to ask a question, comment on what you heard today or find out how I can support you on your journey.